Well, last time in, in last study in, in the book of Acts, we were in Acts chapter 9 and we began focusing on the section of Scripture in which we see Saul is converted. On the road to Damascus, God works miraculously in his life and brings this man who was once a great persecutor to the Christians, a man who would pull Christians from their homes and drag them from foreign cities and put them in jail and then eventually put them to death. This man has been saved radically. God has caused him to fall to the ground. God says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Christ just reveals himself to to Saul in such a way that he comes to repentance. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, no one would have expected this. And so, he is now, in verse 20, preaching Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. And it tells us that, in verse 21, that all were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And he's come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the the chief priest. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving, proving that Jesus is the Christ. And so he's there going to these people in, in which he desired to pull Christians from their homes, bring them from Damascus to put them to death. And now he is a brother to these Christians. He's serving with them. He's in the synagogues. He's preaching in the synagogues. And his desire is, and what we see taking place is he, we're told that he is in verse 22, proving that Jesus is the Christ. What awesome, awesome sermons those must have been there in the synagogues in Damascus. These people who are there and they're seeing Saul of Tarsus and, and saying, how is it that he is the one that's preaching to us? And he's just going through and explaining to them how it is that Christ is the Messiah, proving it to them. In our first study in, in, in this section, I, I focused on, we focused on the deity of Christ and how he would have looked in Scripture and seen all that took place through Scripture, looking ahead to Christ as not only his Messiah, but his Lord and his God. This morning, I want to focus on Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being the Christ. And you have this handout that's there, and it is obviously extensive, um, but I pray that this would be a, just a, a wonderful tool to you to look at, to keep handy, to, to be a, a source of um, encouragement to you as well as a means of evangelizing. The Lord could use this in, in incredible ways to bring people to salvation, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. The idea of Messiah, the idea of a Savior, is something that, that 
is from the very beginning. It's not a new idea that came up in the time of Christ. It's something that was new or that, that, that was from the very beginning. You think of Adam and Eve in the garden. And here they've been created, man and woman. It's very good. They are walking in the garden. They, they, they have fellowship with the Father. There's no sin whatsoever in the garden. None. The, the, the sweetness of, of, of their time there in fellowship with God, being able to commune with Him, to be able to spend time with Him, to be able to see Him in His glory. And then to think that God says, you can eat of all of the trees of the garden, except for this one tree. Don't, don't eat of this one tree. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And you all know the story. Tempted by the serpent, by the devil. They fall into sin. And immediately they go into hiding. You know that feeling when you've done something just so wrong. And you know like when this gets found out. No bueno. This is not good. They, yesterday Natalie. Natalie and Tasha went to a birthday party and, and I was left home with Jonathan and Andrew. Jonathan 9, Andrew 2. And, um, and Jonathan and I were playing gin rummy and, and um, it, we were having a great time. It was taking everything I had to, to beat him, which I did. And, um, <laughs> but, he, but he had me, at, we played a 500. He had me, like he had 420, I had 255. It was not looking good at all. And so we were serious. We were like, we were serious into this. And uh, um, I thought I was a decent gin rummy player until I went on a missions trip with Frank Rubinovich. And we played on the plane. And I feel like I'm good. Like, I, I'm careful. I pick up a card. I, like, mix them around. I put one down. I don't want him to know I'm waiting for one card. And, and like, I'm very careful with how I play. And we were like, I don't know, maybe like, six cards in and he's like you want me to tell you what's in your hand he told me every card in my hand i was like how how did you do it don't ever play him at that game <laughs> but my nine-year-old i'm still able to take kind of and so we're playing and we're serious and we're having fun and andrew wakes up from his nap he comes down and he's walking in and out of the backyard and just having a great time and we're at the kitchen table just playing and having fun and and if we, we just figured Andrew's entertaining himself we can just keep playing and so we did and I finally got a good hand in one and, and and so we get up and we look at the family room and he has taken buckets of dirt from the backyard, all over the coffee table, all over the wool carpet, all over the couches, all over everything. Like, not just a little bit, not, not a little bit. Like, mounds of dirt has just filled into our living room, our family room. And so, when I saw that, well, before that, he comes up to me. He's like, hi, dad, dad. Grabs my hand, all sweet. I'm like, oh, you precious little boy. No, he knew, like he knew his sin was going to be found out soon, what he did. And when I saw it, I like, Andrew, 
You know, and I'm showing, what have you done? And, and he's just like, <gasps> he knows, like, the wages of sin is death in our home. Like, he, <laughs> he knows that this is going to happen. And so I, I, Andrew, get up to your room now. Get to your bed now. Because that was a way of not disciplining and anger. Like, you go to your room now. And so he goes up to his bed. And it, he was there for a while because it took a while to clean this up. Like, it was no small feat. Um, I know you guys are like, you should have been watching them. But I, I should have. But <laughs> to change the fact that there was sin in his heart and he did this. And so you can imagine just like that time span, span. For him sitting up there for 30 minutes while I'm cleaning this up probably felt like 30 days of waiting for the wrath of Almighty Dad to come upon him. And, and so, but you know the feeling, right? You know like what it is to, to, to have that feeling of just like, this is horrible. It, now, you, now you magnify that exponentially and you think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Sweetness of the fellowship that they had. Being without sin. Being able to eat of all of the trees of the garden. And now they're covering themselves with fig leaves. Now they're in the garden and they hear God coming through the garden saying, Adam, where are you? Andrew wanted a savior yesterday. I could hear him upstairs. Mama? <laughs> Mama? It was just like somebody intercede. Somebody, I need, like, this is a horrible time for her to be at a birthday party. Mama? But you can think of, of Adam and Eve in the garden just in desperate need of a savior. Not knowing what was going to happen. All they knew is, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. They don't even know what that necessarily means. But they know it's bad. And they're there in the garden and God asks them, who told you that you were naked? Takes the fig leaves from them and, and clothes them with animal skins, which means that animals had to die. You can imagine Adam and Eve seeing this for the first time, seeing these animals, which biblically speaking, in redemptive history, it, it very well could have been sheep that were killed. Not necessarily, we're not told, but like you, you could picture like the, the sacrifice of, of a lamb that, that, that is given, a perfect lamb without spot or blemish. But whatever it is, there, there is an animal that is put to death or multiple animals that are put to death. And they see this taking place and they see the blood, they hear the sounds, they hear all of it and there's, there's clothes that are placed on them from animal skins. And there had to be a, a sense of, of, okay, we're covered now, temporarily. He made these for us, so it's better than the fig leaves. But they're still witnessing sin and death. But it's the first picture of the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And the fig leaves are not good enough. There must be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. They have children. They have Cain and they have Abel. 
prior to this, just to understand their, their desire for a savior. They're given a promise. If you look in your handout, it's there on the, the first one. Where Genesis 3 and 14 and 15, the serpent, the Lord, the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Between the offspring, serpent, those that would come from him, sin that has come from him, as well as from the seed of the woman, from the offspring of the woman, this serpent's head would be crushed. She's never had a child at this point. She had to be sitting there and listening to these promises that are given and listening thinking, somehow or another, there is going to be one that comes from me. And from me, the serpent's head is going to be crushed. The, the, the hope in a Savior so much permeated everything was just this glimmer of hope for them that Adam names his wife after this, Eve, meaning mother of all living. Adam's looking and saying like, okay, from now on, your name's Eve because from you, the serpent's head's going to be crushed. You will be the mother of all that's living and, and yet she's never had a child. She has her first child, Cain. And when she has that first child, they say, let's name him Cain, meaning what? Meaning, here he is. Every bit of their hope is in a Savior that's to come. Every part of their hope is that there would come one that would forgive, cause the forgiveness of sin and cause the serpent's head to be crushed. All of their hope is that that sin would be removed of them sinning against God and causing this sin and death to enter into the world and and fellowship with God to be broken completely. They, They want a Savior more than anything, mother of all living. Here he is. And then what we find is Cain is not who it is. Cain kills Abel. So now you've just seen gross sin come into the world. It's it's something where they, they had gone from perfection to now husband and wife fighting. Sons fighting. Cain offering his fruit and, 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 and grain offering and, and Abel offering a sacrifice of an animal offering. God accepts Abel's sacrifice. Why? Because there must be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. But doesn't accept Cain's offering. Cain is, is, is trying to do it in a man way, but Abel's doing it God's way. Cain hates that. And so Cain kills his brother. As a parent, you can just you can possibly imagine just the heartache of it all. One of my children has killed the other child, hated him so much that he killed him. Seeing just wickedness, just incredible wickedness, not just amongst Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, but, but from their children and their children and all that is taking place. It, it is just it is turning into a world of incredible sin. 
In fact, in, in Genesis chapter 4, it tells us that Adam and Eve had, had Seth, bore a son, named him Seth. And we're told that it says in verse 25 of Genesis 4, for God had appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And men began to call on the name of the Lord. What that tells you is that they're not calling on the name of the Lord for much time. But there's a plan. Abel's been killed, but God's appointed another seed for me. Another one that is going to come. Another one in whom from him we will find the Messiah coming. They're looking ahead to the Messiah. By the time of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, we, we know that, that during that, that, that time frame, it was incredible wickedness that was covering the earth. Everybody was doing whatever was right in their own eyes. But Genesis 6, 8 says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. When the entire world is being flooded and everybody is being put to death, God continues the seed. God continues the promise. God continues the hope of the one who would put make it so that the serpent's head was crushed and sin would be removed. And it comes through Noah now. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't because he deserved it. It was all grace. It was God's plan of redemption continuing on. And so you continue through Genesis. We're just at Genesis chapter 6, but you just continue through. You find Abraham and a covenant that's made with Abraham. Genesis 12, 2, I, I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make you a, uh, your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's continuing on. In you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. You're going to have a child, and you see... Year after year, decade after decade, goes by, no children. Finally, when Abram's way beyond those years, and they've waited, they've had Ishmael, and, 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 and it's his own works trying to, to, to do what he possibly can to have a child, but not with his wife, Sarah what you end up finding is that God gives Abraham Isaac. Then he tells him in Genesis 22 to take his son, his only son, whom he loves, and to sacrifice him. And Moriah, on the mountain which he would tell him. So he takes his son, his only son, whom he loves, takes him up on the mount. And just prior to putting him to death, you hear God tell him to stop. And God says that he would provide himself a lamb. A lamb that God would provide. Not Abraham's son, but God's son. 
You hear him say to, to him, blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as, as the stars of, the, of, of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In your seed, this is what's going to happen. And so there's the continuation of the promise. All the nations of the earth would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And then you just go through scripture and you find detail after detail of this Messiah who is to come. That he'd be of the tribe of Judah. That he'd be born in the town of Bethlehem. And you can imagine Saul going through with the people there in the synagogue saying, do you remember Adam and Eve? Do you remember the clothing that God made? Do you remember Cain and Abel? Do you remember the sacrifice that was acceptable? Do you remember what God said with Noah and his seed continuing on? Do you remember what God said with Abraham and his seed continuing on through him? Do you remember what took place with Abraham offering up Isaac there on the same mountain in which Christ was crucified? And God said that he provide himself a lamb, and he did in Christ. And so he could just walk him through redemptive history showing Christ is the Messiah. He comes from the tribe of Judah. We find that in the genealogies there in Matthew chapter 1. Revelation, he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. He's the one that's triumphed. He's able to open the seven scrolls, or the, the scroll and the seven seals. <coughs> Bethlehem, Micah 2, or 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, through you, the, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. The Messiah is going to come from you, Bethlehem. We know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. No room for him in the inn. But they're passing through, and it's in that spot in which he's born there in a stable laid in a manger. When you look at the, the charts that are here, the, the words that are in green are over 1,200 years. Prophecy is given 1,200 years before the birth of Christ. The ones that are in yellow are 800 years before the birth of Christ. And the ones that are in blue are more than 500 years before the birth of Christ. And so... You know this as you're going through. 1,200 years, 800 years, 500 years before the birth of Christ, he'd be born in Bethlehem. He'd be born a king in the line of David. Isaiah 9-7, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Matthew 1-1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Details that are given to show that his genealogy goes straight through to the line of David. That this Messiah was going to come and he was going to be a child that would be born. Details that are given from the seed of the woman, from the seed of this woman, Eve. The serpent's head would be crushed. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. It goes on, for he'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Mighty God. 
Luke 2.11, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, who is, he is Christ the Lord. So Saul could have easily said, it's said that he would be born. He'd be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 13 and 14. Um, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name. He'll be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Come from a virgin. All of these things given hundreds, over 500 years before this particular prophecy that's given is he's going to come from a virgin. You you may think, why is that important? It's important because sin is passed through the seed of the man. But from the seed of the woman, one was going to come who was going to be a savior, who's going to be a Messiah. He would not be born with a sinful nature because he was coming from the woman. Our sinful nature comes from our dads. We all have dads. Jesus did not. Born from a virgin, without a sinful nature. And he would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. We find that in Matthew chapter 1, where we're told that, I'm sorry, yeah, in in Matthew chapter 1, Mary pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. God sent the angel to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. All of the details going through all of the details. Kings would bring him gifts and fall down before him. He'd come from the seed of Abraham. He'd be born from the seed of Isaac. He'd be coming from the seed of Jacob, a star out of Jacob. He would be a firstborn son. He'd be the rod out of the stem of Jesse. There would be a massacre of children. We see all of this taking place. He'd have eternal existence. You go through and you start to look at the the life of Christ. He'd be called out of Egypt and tells in Hosea 11, 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And you might think of all this, well, how is this all going to work out? And then you look in Matthew chapter two, it says, so he took the child and his mother during the night and left for where? For Egypt. Every part of it, this is where he's going to go, but he'll come out of Egypt. He'd be rejected by his brethren. Psalm 69, verse 8, I am a stranger to my own brothers, an alien to my, to my own mother's sons. And, and, and you find in John chapter 7, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. We find that rulers would take counsel against him, that he be rejected, that he would enter the temple He'd call those who were not his people, Isaiah 55. We know that he would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then we find there in Mark chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Colt, the foal of a donkey. Every detail he'd be a stone of stumbling to the jews isaiah 8 14 we find that to be exactly what took place he would cause people who were deaf to hear and 
cause the blind to see. Isaiah 29, verse 18. In that day, the deaf will hear in the, the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, 5. Then, then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And what do we find throughout the life of Jesus? People who are blind are made able to see. People who are deaf are made able to hear. God does it. People who are lame are able to walk. People who are dead are risen again from the dead. It's awesome to be able to see the promises that are fulfilled, the prophecies that are given and the fulfillment through Scripture. You can go through that he'd bring in new and everlasting covenant. He'd be a prophet like Moses, speaking God's words. He'd be hated without reason. He'd come to do the will of God. He'd be anointed by God. And the list goes on and on. You go find over and over again many, many things. If you look under the section of Jesus' death and resurrection, you get details there that there would be a Passover sacrifice with no broken bone. Exodus 12, 46. It must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. Same thing in Numbers 9.12. You find it there at the crucifixion, John 19, verse 31. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. These things happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. I mean, can you imagine Saul preaching the sermon? Preaching the synagogue, detail after detail after detail of what the Messiah was to look like. Who the Savior was to be. The one in whom was going to take away the sin of the world. And then he starts going through. Where was he born? What was his lineage? Do you remember when he came out of Egypt? Do you remember that they they didn't break his legs? They broke the other two guys' legs. They did not break his legs so that not one of the bones would be broken. Picture of the sacrifice given at Passover. He'd be hung on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Be sure to bury him the same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Please remember that that, that, that particular prophecy was given 1,200 years before Christ was crucified or before he was born. 1,200 years. Over 1,200 years before. There is no form of crucifixion that even exists at that time. God orchestrated all of the details, all of it, to be where the Romans would occupy at that time and the Romans would institute a form of death, capital punishment, which would be crucifixion. Someone who's executed by a sword doesn't say, like it says in Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. But Jesus said, I thirst. I mean, we see detail after detail. Nobody who's stoned to death says, I thirst. But someone who hangs on a tree 
becomes a curse for them for hours and hours and hours, says, I thirst. He'd be accused by false witnesses. Psalm 27, do not hand me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. Matthew 26, many false witnesses came forward. He'd be struck on the head, Micah 5.1. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Matthew 27.30, they spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. He'd be betrayed by a friend, and we find that with Judas. He'd be despised and rejected. He'd be accused and afflicted, but he would open not his mouth. He'd be buried with the rich. He'd be numbered with transgressors. He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. They would have known all of this. It took place. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was a lamb without spot or blemish. You remember in Numbers 21 where... We're told that people came to Moses and said, we've sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us as these serpents are biting all these people. And the people prayed and Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was if a serpent was, had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Saul could have said, you remember that story? What does a serpent represent? Sin. He's there in place there on a pole for everybody to look at. Where's Jesus? He's there on that cross. What has happened? He became sin for us. How are we saved? Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's looking upon Him, our Savior. It's by faith alone that we're saved. Just like it was with those that looked at the serpent there in the camp. They were saved from their poison. We could be saved because He's become sin for us. He was the serpent that was placed there, became sin for us there on that pole. Look upon Him. Believe upon Him. You look at Isaiah 53. Turn there with me for a moment in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. We find here prophecy after prophecy that are given. In fact, as you go through Isaiah, there's these messianic songs that are given that are pictures there of of Christ to come one after another after another. They are hoping in a Messiah who is to come. But we look at Isaiah 53 and you go down to verse 3. He's despised and rejected by men. Verse 4, He's borne our griefs, He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It's a suffering Savior. It's a suffering Messiah. He's going to be wounded for our transgressions. He's going to be bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace will be upon Him. By His stripes we're all healed. And Saul could have said, do you remember? He's being whipped by them. By His stripes we're healed. 
We all like sheep have gone astray and we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it shares a silence. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation for he's cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. It was the Lord that caused him to be there as a sacrifice for us. On the final page there on the back, you'll find a few more things. His hands and his feet would be pierced. Soldiers would cast lots for his coat. He'd be given gall and vinegar or sour wine. He'd be beaten and spit upon. Brothers and sisters, when you go through this, Please know that these are just some of the prophecies that are given. But when you look at redemptive history from Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, the the whole sacrificial system, Passover, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the story of Joseph and, and his brothers, you start to go through, you look at all of what's taking place in Isaiah. You go through the prophets. You see the details that are given. You've got to figure that Saul preached with just incredible confidence. The one that was going to come from the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head was Christ, Jesus our Lord. And there had to be multitudes that believed. The church grew in incredible ways. The Lord orchestrated it in such a way that the Romans would come in, build roads all over to where you could go 53,000 miles preaching the gospel and never come off a road. He's going all over the place preaching the gospel. And he's telling them about Christ. Christianity is not a religion in which it's just, oh, I kind of hope, hope these things are true. I hope it's true. I, but there's a lot of religions that are out there and other ones may be true too. I don't, that's not how we approach it at all. There's no other name under heaven by which any one of us could be saved apart from Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the Messiah. You may have come in here with doubts this morning. I pray that the Holy Spirit worked in your hearts to where you read these things and you sit here thinking, I don't know of any other explanation than that God said that he would send a savior from the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And then he gave details of it so that we would know that Christ is in fact the Messiah. He gave details, and they just scratched the surface this morning. But these are details that are given thousands of years before, over 800 years before, over 500 years before. 
None of them less than that. Details that are given as far as hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ would even come. Saying all of the details of his life. You don't plan that if you desire to be the Savior. You don't say like, well, let's make it so my parents have to go to Egypt beforehand. Let's make it so I'm born in Bethlehem. Let's make it so there's a massacre of children. Let's make it so I can make blind people see and deaf people hear. Let's make it so that I'm buried in a rich man's tomb. And I'll make it so that before I'm buried, I'm, I'm crucified on this particular mountain. It's the same one in which Abraham went to offer up his son Isaac. You don't make out things like that. This is given to us so that we would read it, know that it was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the prophecies were given so that we could look and say, He is the Messiah. There could be no doubt that He is our Savior. There could be no doubt that the one in whom Adam and Eve are just waiting for, child's born, here He is. And to be totally disappointed to find out, no, that's not him. He kills his brother. That we could be at a place of saying, here he is, and it is Christ the Lord. There's great confidence that we know that here he is. Not only is there great confidence in that, but we could be like Saul of Tarsus and say, I'm going to... I'm going to count my life as rubbish that I might just gain Christ because I know that my Redeemer lives. He rose again from the dead, and it is Christ the Lord. I will go wherever God calls me. I will face whatever comes my way. I'll count the most precious thing that this earth can offer as just dung in comparison to the excellencies of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Savior and my Lord. I'll forsake everything in which I was pursuing to to put to death Christians, to being willing to be put to death myself for the sake of the proclamation of the best news that anybody could ever possibly hear, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went into the synagogues proving Jesus to be the Christ. And I can say with absolute confidence It may not have been a handout like this, probably. But I can guarantee you that he went through verses like these. And he said, how else can you explain it? And the Holy Spirit worked upon people's hearts and brought them to salvation. The text is there. If your eyes are being opened this morning... Give glory to God for he has brought you here and he is working in your heart and bringing you to salvation. If you're a believer here this morning, praise be to the Lord. You have a Messiah. You have a Savior. You don't have to be scared to death of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God to come upon you. Because he became sin for us. And whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Lord God, what an awesome, awesome picture we find in Scripture of you as our Messiah. 
We know from your lineage. We know from the details of your life. We know from the details of your death. We know from your resurrection from the dead. That not only are you the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but you are God himself who became man. Emmanuel, God with us. You fulfilled our righteousness. And you died on the cross for our sins. Rising again on the third day. And you tell us that whoever believes in you won't perish. We won't have your wrath come upon us. But we'll have everlasting life. We'll have the very righteousness of Christ placed upon our account. I pray on a morning like this that you would bring someone here to salvation and that they would just follow you all the days of their lives. I pray for us as believers that our confidence in you as our Savior is so renewed that joy overflows within our hearts and we just desire to praise you with all that is within us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.